But before we get back to our thematic study through Proverbs, while it was fresh on my mind, I did want to just talk with you briefly in in Sunday school this morning. Um, A lot of uh, one particular session from the conference I was at this week um, from Dr. Denny Burke, who is a professor down at Southern Seminary and, and Boyce College, which is their undergrad arm, and uh, he's just been so helpful. When Pastor Joey preached on uh, our view towards homosexual sin several weeks ago, uh, one of Denny's articles was very informative and helpful. He's written a, a good book that helped us as we were uh, working and massaging our statement of faith on gender and stuff like that. And um, This... Um, my address to you this morning is more than than uh, you know this. Lest you misunderstand the conference I just went to, it's much bigger than the homosexual and lesbian agenda. That is just a fruit of, of a much larger issue in the culture that you and I live in with this new sexual revolution where man wants to determine the boundaries, where man wants to take authority that is not his to like redefine what what is marriage and what is not, what is male, what is female, or is there an in-between uh, line and there are we'd grab there are a couple of new resources for you in the book nook one of those by Denny Burke uh is uh, uh transforming homosexuality that he wrote with Heath Lambert Denny was in the process of writing a commentary on the pastoral epistles Heath Lambert, the executive director for the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, was in the midst of writing a theology of biblical counseling. And they tabled their writing projects because as they were getting ready for the conference, um, they reached out to publishers and said, hey, if we get you something, can you get us a book in time for the conference? No publisher except for PNR Press. And uh, they said, we will have you. And they, so they had a couple of hundred advance copies for us to get. And I got them really cheap. They're only like five bucks out there. And so they, uh, for the whole month of December, the two of them got down and they wrote this book, What the Bible Says About Sexual Orientation and Change. And, because there's a lot of loud voice, loud and influential voices in evangelicalism today that's suggesting that it is not a sin, that same-sex attraction, you know, and so they take it out of the, uh, the context of sin issues. So I, I, I'd commend that to you. I'd also commend, uh, we, we'd already had some copies of Kevin DeYoung's What, the, what Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality?, uh, those were gone, so I grabbed a few more copies of those. Dr. Moeller, president of Southern Seminary, uh, he'd written a, a, a preaching book just a couple of years ago uh, on uh, He Is Not Silent on, on preaching, and so uh, to the same sort of title, he wrote, uh, We Cannot Be Silent, Speaking Truth to a Culture Redefining Sex, Marriage, and the very meaning of right and wrong. Um, and so, just very helpful. You know, as I said, the, 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 you know, the, 
the whole issues with homosexuality and lesbianism and gender issues is part of a much bigger issue. And so where we're starting today in Philippians 4.8, I think will center your thoughts to realize that even when there is an exclusive teaching time on an issue, say like, what, what's the last theme in Proverbs we studied together that we traced through the book? Do you remember? Alcohol. It was a few weeks. Alcohol. And uh, so we traced uh, alcohol through there. And, and you might be prone to think, well, I don't have any issue with this, so then you, you tune out, which is the wrong posture. Or if there's a, uh, a series on marriage and you're not married, you might think, well, there's not, nothing to be said. Or, or uh, we trace the theme of purity and sex in Proverbs, and you might think, well, uh, uh, the, the, there is no such thing as it not applying if you're, if you're in Christ. And so... Uh, Philippians 4.8. Who's got it for us? And, and we'll read it for us. Philippians 4.8. I'll read it. Okay. Thank you, Chess. Just that verse? Yep. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Our thought life. Thus, the title, uh, Embracing Pure Thoughts for Personal Change. You'll notice that I uh, am not being too specific, though a lot of my remarks, which are uh, a rehashing of uh, Denny Burke's uh, presentation at 9 o'clock on Wednesday, last Wednesday morning, there's a question that needs to be answered and that you and I need to be equipped to answer with biblical clarity, uh, speaking the truth in love, is same-sex attraction sinful? And again, to think about that very specific particular question, even if you think, well, duh, well, it's not just a duh moment, you know, because there's a lot of things connected that we can be edified in our preparation, in our thoughts. We want to offer... Hope not only for those with that particular propensity, but also equipping on how to build a platform to offer biblical change and hope over and against those thinking it is a particular orientation. That is a, the the operative word. When when people pose the question, they pop the question, is same-sex attraction sinful? Or with issues of uh, homosexuality or issues like that. And they talk about the issue, uh, they use the word orientation. Uh, but I want you to think a little bit broader. Though we're making those connections this morning, God's word offers hope over any life-dominating sin not just this particular one. The battle is won or lost in the mind. Not, not thinking right through the practices of homosexual activity, but even the desire for same sex. You, you might not deal with this, as I, I think I already said, you might not, uh, not deal with this, but 
it's a very real issue. And the issue is temptation. The issue is sin. The issue is desire. Think of those three terms. Temptation, sin, and desire. A person can feel attraction for sinful things and thus making it sinful. Uh, so, I mentioned the background of, of the book. I'm going to try to center our, uh, you know, the, the discussion could be lo- much longer than what our Sunday school half hour has, has for us. And so, these four questions, and, and they're on your, on your handout, and I, I apologize, I don't know why they're lighter print, uh, but uh, this is what our discussion revolves around. What makes desire into orientation? So that even is even if we weren't talking about those that suggest that homosexuality is an orientation, what about other life-dominating sins? Am I predisposed? This comes into issues of uh, what is one of the uh, psychologized or medicalized issues that is more of a moral issue that the Bible addresses? Can you think of some? Guiltiness? Huh? You both mentioned okay. So the term uh, being an alcoholic. If you go to your doctor and you're checking off the list of symptoms and everything, everything else, it's on your list. The Bible doesn't talk about alcoholism. It talks about somebody being a drunkard and not to be drunk with wine. And so that's dealing with a life-dominating sin. And so much of what we are thinking through today has ramifications. So what makes desire into orientation? Second question, what makes desire sinful? Third, what makes Jesus' temptation innocent? Crucial thing here. And then what makes our temptation sinful? Think about the first question. What makes desire an orientation? Since that is the operative word that is used in dialogue, and as people might ask you, you might get involved in conversations. What makes uh, desire? Because we've got to define terms. Mm-hmm. How are people using their, the terms that they're throwing around out there? Uh, you know, when uh, I've mentioned before, like when one of my kids asked me, you know, hey, Dad. I heard in school, uh, you know, in, in uh, Christian homeschool, about, uh, I want to ask Jesus in my heart. And I said, you know what? I don't know what you mean. What does it mean to ask Jesus in your heart? And he said, I don't know. I said, I don't know either because I don't find it in the Bible. I said, but the Bible talks about faith. It talks about repentance. I said, so let's, let's define our terms. Let's use biblical terms so that we can understand what we're talking about. Orientation you're not going to find in the Bible. And so define terms, sexual orientation. Uh, it, you know, it's a problematic category because of human identity and the... Uh, I'll, I'll leave it. If you want to, if you want to listen to Rosaria Butterfield's testimony from from the conference, uh, she even even made an issue over uh, how people use homosexual as an adjective, right? As if that identifies you. Well, um, what about? Uh, uh, if if you have a life dominating sin, sin of uh, of anger, what adjective can we use as our permanent identity? As uh, uh, 
hey, explosive Paul, or, uh, you know, or whatever, whatever issue. So, you know, we don't want to go down and, and uh, chase that rabbit. But the modern concept of um, homosexual orientation, the biblical writers knew nothing of. And I want you to to hear it the exact way I said it. It's a modern concept that they were not familiar with. And so when you've got a contemporary evangelical like, I'll, I'll drop his name so that you can know what I'm talking about here, like Matthew Vine's book on the gay Christian. It's like an oxymoron. Exactly. You know, so the question is phrased wrong. It's a bad title. Uh, you can't answer a question without knowing what you're talking about. The American Psychological Association defines orientation this way. Uh, uh, according to them, it's an enduring pattern. So is that just uh, referring to an enduring attraction? Well, it might be more than attraction, but it definitely at least has to include attraction. And the way the discussions go today is that they use attraction and desire synonymously. Now, so when we think about desire, does the Bible address desire? Yes. Absolutely. We can get to some answers here. Uh, let me make sure I'm not... Uh, uh, Jumping ahead of ahead of myself. So so let's go there. Uh, since we mentioned the word desire, Matthew five twenty seven and twenty eight, Arasia. Yes, or drill. Matthew five twenty seven and twenty eight, Jesus Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it, and you, you see throughout this part of the sermon, you have heard it said, but yet I say unto you. And so he's, he's helping clarify misunderstandings of, of the law here. You know, and in a performance-based religion, you think, well, I haven't done the act, so I can't be guilty. That's where the discussion we enter into Jesus is preaching here, Matthew 5, 27, 28. Somebody read it for us, please. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if you're right, I causes you to sin, pluck it out. And, and, and etc. So, We've got our word, lust, the desire that is used in this discussion towards orientation. Uh, the word for desire, where's our Greek uh, scholar? George is in here. Epithumia is the word for desire. The word is neutral. And the meaning is determined based on what? In Bible study, we say what is king? Context is king. And so, based on how the biblical author uses the word desire determines whether it's a good desire or a bad desire. And so, uh, he that desires, 
the office of a bishop. Desire is a good thing. So there's a positive usage that is used in Scripture. But here, in Jesus' sermon, in the context, uh, he says, both the doing of adultery that you've heard told all your lives as good Hebrew students being brought up under the Torah, you've always known that the act is wrong. But don't think in your hypocrisy that the all-seeing, all-knowing God has not already exegeted your heart, which leads to the act. Because here, he doesn't, he doesn't say, well, you already thought it, you might as well do it. Like I've heard some people say. But what he's doing here is saying that uh, you know, the, the act and the desire of adultery are wrong. Both of them. What is right, harmless, or a moral desire versus one that is not is what we need to be clear on. Uh, So the question comes, well, how do we determine that? Is it based on intensity? If I'm just not too intense in that desire? Uh, Is it when I choose to look upon somebody with with, uh, desire? Here's the illustration I loved, and I busted a gut when Benny said it. If if we try to determine that, well, I'm not culpable of sinful thought unless it's intense, try that with your spouse. What's Ray, you tell your wife sometime, Wendy, I... I noticed this girl, and she she's really good looking. Not as good looking as you, but she she is pretty hot. She's smoking. What's she gonna do? You'll be smoking. You'll be smoking. Yeah. Okay. I I think you. So so think that through. Okay, it's not a matter of intensity and intentionality. What does Jesus teach us, or what's the whole of Scripture teach us about our total depravity? It's affected our our whole being, and so we're culpable for known sins and unknown, intentional, unintentional, because that's who we are by nature. We don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we are by nature sinners. And so we're, you know, when, when you say, well, it's not a matter of intensity, you know, you can't try that with your spouse because you're going to slap you silly. Uh, uh, it reminds you of your, you of your vow. You're thinking, you, you know, you want to kill the person that cut you off on the highway. Well, what level of dead do you want them to be? Yeah. Yeah. You know. So, so I think that illustration helps us in understanding what Jesus' point is here. It is a zero tolerance policy when we speak with biblical accuracy from the lips of Jesus. Uh, Jesus connects the seventh commandment with the tenth commandment. He's not just concerned about the deed, but the desire. Not just the chosen desire, but any desire. 
The issue is the object of the desire. Think of, you know, and again, think of positive desires. I mentioned one of them. He that desires the office of a bishop desires a good thing. If you desire something evil, what does Jesus say here? Your desire is sinful. It's wrong. Uh, if there is any forbidden object. So, can I, can I remind us here? Uh, as we engage our culture in this sexual revolution that includes homosexuality, we are not preaching a gospel to them that says we're interested in behavior modification, that we'll be satisfied if you become heterosexual. Mm-hmm. We will not be satisfied until you bow the knee to Jesus Christ as your Savior and your new Master and your Lord, and we see Christ-likeness in you. That's Colossians 1. That is Romans 8.29. God's intent is not heterosexuality, but holiness. And so we share Christ. We share the truth. That's the most loving thing we can do is preach the gospel that brings change from the inside out. So, so we, we got that first question. What makes desire sinful? It's not just the chosenness. It's not the intensity. Anything that is desired that is forbidden. So let's ask, let's ask the, uh, the second question. Uh, let's run over to Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4.15 Jesus was tempted. Same way man's been tempted. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, both of pride of life. Tempted in all ways like as we are yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 You got it? Who's reading it? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. One who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. All right. Now, hear me. Think with me cautiously and clearly here, lest we be guilty of heresy. Jesus was impeccable. Absolutely sinless. His suffering and his temptation, though real are different. Mm-hmm. They're different. His, without sin, there was no desire that predisposed Him. Ever since Genesis 3, when sin entered the experience of man, all we can know is sin. And so we have a natural propensity <clears throat> so that when we are tempted, we want to give way. And it comes from within, which we're going to get to in just a second, about how, how we're different from Jesus. So, uh, his attractions were never after anything that his father forbade. Jot down John 5.19. John 5.19. He only did what honored his father. Think about it. Jesus could... Look upon the woman who was caught in the act of adultery 
and not have one passing thought of all the lurid details of what that meant. Jesus could evangelize the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4 and not have one slight inkling of anything forbidden from it by his father. His, his suffering and temptation, though he is our great high priest, we cannot, we cannot say that there is a perfect mirror here. They are different. Which, uh, because we do sin. He didn't sin. And so there's the issue of his impeccability. Well, so here's he didn't where... didn't have the sinful nature. Didn't have a sinful nature. from Adam to all men, except... That's a good way to think about it. He didn't have a sinful nature. He, had, he was human and God in one. 100% man, 100% you know, God. So if you stuck him with a, a pin, it would hurt. He hungered, he thirsted. Yep, all of it. You know... But he didn't have a sinful human nature that would be tempted in that way. So it's so that's the way we've got to. Th- when we dialogue with people about uh, you know his his impeccability, you know, there yes, he is an, he is the perfect high priest that the writer of Hebrews presents him as. But there there is a difference. So, what is that difference? And so, run with me to this uh, this next passage, James one. James is addressing us here in our temptations. Uh, what makes our temptation? Jesus' temptation were, was sinless. What makes our temptation sinful? James one, thirteen to fifteen. I believe recently we were having a discussion. I don't remember who, where, when, and all this was about, but we were discussing uh, this passage here in in Hebrews 1, and uh, I think we were trying to make too sharp a theological pencil because in the, dis- the, the way the discussion went was, well, uh, are, are trials and temptations different? You know, and uh, I'm not convinced that uh, we can necessarily know where where the distinction is there, but that's for another discussion, another time. James one, notice with me, verse number thirteen. Let no one—that means you and me—see <laughs> yourself in the verse. Let no one say when he is tempted, "I'm being tempted by God," for God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each one. Do you see yourself in the verse? Each one, you are one of them. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You notice how James presents the argument. Can't blame God. That's off the possibility list. And you can't do like the <coughs> hyper-charismatic crowd that everything that goes wrong is because of Satan's working. Yes, there is a very real devil with all of his minions. There is spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6 is all this. But he doesn't go there either. James goes to our heart. All temptation includes a trial an enticement, an allurement to relieve it through sin. 
So, take this off the table for a second. As we're thinking about the sexual revolution and homosexuality and the stuff that the conferences went to addressed. When you, if you are married, any thought that enters your life about your spouse, whether that be your husband or whether that be your wife, whoever you are, the moment that thought crosses your mind of if only, like if only she was more submissive, or if only I had tried this one, what you have just done is cross the line in your, in your thought life in sin. I was talking with a couple recently and we walked through how uh, uh, the, 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 the linked chain of how somebody uh, is how an adultery occurs in a marriage. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just happen. It is the end to a long linked chain that began in the mind where somebody was thinking the if only and then the thinking after their dream world, their fantasy world of what it would be great, uh, how if their spouse would just only, you know. So, so. Anyways, let me move back to uh, what we're talking about here today. There's always both elements: the trial and the enticement. Though experientially we might not be able to distinguish, the trial may be the enticement. Now, going back to Jesus, in our contrast with James, who addresses us, and the writer of Hebrews, who addressed Jesus, he never experienced enticement from his, from a sinful nature to, to sin. James says, where that temptation comes from is our own desires, our own wicked hearts. Um, so Jesus never experienced it. If you have a different answer than that, you're a heretic, and we'll throw you out later. But but in James, James's little epistle here, the desire is sinful. In any degree of desire, it is evil. And verse 14 is where he shows how our temptations are different. Jesus's didn't arise from evil in his own nature. Ours arrive from the launching pad of sin. When Satan, the master tempter, opens up his, you know, think through the the fishing uh, language that is used here in James, the lures, the enticements, when he opens up his temptation tackle box to find out what always trips you up, what always works? Where does he go for that? He, after he's, you know, he goes after what you what you want. There can be an external and an internal components of this whole uh, temptation thing. Jesus experienced the external temptations from the outside, right? He faced hunger, thirst. Think about Matthew 4, where he was led off into the wilderness to be tempted. So all the external temptations came upon him, but he never experienced them internally from a a natural bent towards sin that we have. We're already twisted. 
They never found root in his heart. For us, with, say, attraction for somebody's wife, when there's sexual attraction, it's not just a... Uh, here's the issue. Uh, I was talking with some people after the uh, seminar on uh, Wednesday, and I, I, uh, I've been in contact with, uh, with Denny some over this whole subject. We teach kind of a, a reformed view of creation here at this church. We've got colorful leaves turning out here. And so it is appropriate to find beauty in creation, to find beauty in music that we're going to participate in later in our worship service and song, to find beauty in art, because all of it, in a, just a small way, mirrors our marvelous Creator. You know, and as I have lost and gotten weaker and weaker and lost all my muscle, one of my boys is gaining everything and more so than I've ever lost. Transference. Yeah, transfer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, think about this. People want to segregate attraction that is right from attraction that is wrong. That's a very skinny, skinny, narrow line. And I'd encourage you not to go there. Let's say that again. Yeah. There is a very thin line between appropriate benign noticing of beauty and sinful desire. In uh, correspondence, uh, this came from my iPhone. Uh, the guy I was driving with this week, I, I, I emailed uh, uh, Denny because I was talking with some well-versed people who are friends in ministry and we still... Uh, uh, so the question, when we relate to people that we... Um, uh, Time's sake, man, I'm trying to scrunch this all down. I'm still not going to have time. Jot down 1 Timothy 5.2 for your meditation later on. Paul writes to the young preacher, Timothy. A young man who needs to know how to relate to women in his congregation. And what is, what is Paul's words of wisdom? Older women as mothers and younger women as sisters in all purity. So, hey, Tim, if she's older than you, think about her as ma. If she's young, young your age or younger, think of her as your sister. That gives a great principle in our thinking. How, how do we know if we blurred the line between a right benign recognition of beauty and sinful attraction? You wouldn't do it with your sister? That's a very skinny line. We need to stay as far away from the cliff right. as absolutely possible. And so Paul gives this advice. Uh, recently, we went through... Uh, Paul's little pastoral epistle to Titus. And in Titus 2.6, if you wanted to jot that one down, um, he talks about self-restraint and you know this, this disciplined mind, this disciplined thinking that we're talking about this morning is exactly what Paul addresses to Titus. We are culpable and accountable for our thought life. Oh, we can't open up right there. It's hot. So... Um, it's the same principle. 
You know, we need to learn how to capture, we are commanded in Scripture to take captive our thoughts to the obedience of Christ, and that's what we're talking about here with attraction. Now, what did, when you were reading in Matthew, what did Jesus say? What, the verse I started to read was, if, you're, you know, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, chop it off. Chop it off. It's just being, knowing what your weaknesses are and being tough mm-hmm. on yourself, so that if you are prone to you know, being an alcoholic, then you stay away from it. Yeah. If you're prone, if you want to go back to smoking cigarettes, don't go into the the package store that sells cigarettes. You know, if you're have a wandering mind about the opposite sex, drive a wide path around it. I remember uh, counseling a lot of various guys on on sexual sin, and uh, one guy who. On his way home from work, it, uh, this was out in Southern California, so there were there were all the girly shops, and then all these nasty billboards that I uh, couldn't wait to get away from billboard land and everything else. And so we took out the street map and we plotted him a new way home from work that didn't go, you know, didn't go around the the sinful potholes that he had become aware of because he's right. trying to restructure sinful habits and replace them with righteous ones. So let's, let's, let's draw the conclusion here. Uh, um, there's, there's so much more that uh, needs to be said, but you know, to call gay people sinful and to call an ace an ace, a spade a spade, and sin, sin. To call homosexuality or any other heterosexual sin a sin is to offer hope. Because we know what to do with sin. You know, if, if, if we play the whole game in the psychological world or, uh, you know, and you get your label where you're not accountable, you're not culpable for sin issues, we can never medicalize what God has moralized. And, and when we bring it into the realm of biblical revelation that addresses these issues, I don't know what to do with orientation. But since in the conversation it is used synonymously with desire, we know what the Bible teaches us about desire, both right desire and wrong desire. So to, uh, you know, for when, when there is all that's going on in protests against truth tellers that it's hate speech, the most loving thing to do is to help people know they can be released from their sin through faith in Christ. Yeah. Um, so, sin is not just what we do, it's what we are. Uh, we started the guys gathering yesterday, we were unpacking a little bit of that. And so, when we, uh, say, say you're talking with somebody who says, you know, I'm, I, I, I pursue a gay lifestyle. Uh, you're talking to somebody uh, on the job. Um, it doesn't make us any more bright that God called us. It doesn't make us any less sinful. You know what that ought to do? That ought to heighten our war against indwelling sin because just because you don't have that, that propensity towards that, any particular sin, whether it be a dr- being a drunkard like we talked about earlier or any other sin. Um, I'm not saying that, that we even discuss... Homosexual sin is the same as we do others because you know that it is a, there's a way that it is dis, distinct 
in, in scripture. It's a sin against nation, uh, nature. It's a sin against creation. So we're not saying that it's, that it's like any other sin, but it is sin. And when we talk in terms of sin, there is hope. And, uh, uh we do not, let me say it again. We do not teach a lack of victory over sinful attraction because that would put the homosexual crowd in a separate camp. To talk about the gay Christian, like the book by Vines, not only is it an oxymoron and horrible theology, where's the victory? There is struggle, yes, once you've been set free from the deadness and living according to the passions of your own fallen nature and you've been enslaved to Jesus for righteousness, there is victory. And it's not that he took the struggle away. It's a fight till the death. But it's a fight. And our aim is to engage homosexuality not just to get them to be heterosexual. But like we're after every unbeliever that, that we see them pursue Christ in the gospel to produce holiness. Would you pray with me? God, there's so much more to the discussion. We want to be a place that is known for truth and known for love and the balance of the two that uh, we studied together in Second John for a few weeks. We pray that the banner over this church as people hear about biblical counseling and the gospel that is proclaimed here, that it would be known as a church where there is hope. Hope for change that comes through the gospel. We know that it will not be without a cost. There will be false accusations. There will be assault. There may be protests. There may be much to pay for the truth. But, oh God, I beg You that we would not be guilty of being a church that is unbalanced. That we would not look at them as the enemy, but as our mission field. We give You all the praise and glory in Your precious Son's name. Amen.